Podcast 009, Making the Big Bucks with Permaculture, Part 1 of 3. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. (laughs) Now we're doing a podcast. That's going to be on the podcast. And that's, right. Yes, cheer for the podcast. All right. All right, so I am Paul Wheaton. I'm standing at the front of the room at the Missoula Public Library, and we're going to talk about making the big buck with permaculture. And I'm recording it for the podcast, and uh, yeah, so. And I think podcasts should have more stupid sounds like. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a certified master gardener, permaculture instructor. Permies.com, I go to the website. Who, who has been to my website or videos or that's, – that's it? Two, three, three, three people? That's four. Four. Man, this is lame. All right. Only six of us. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. This is like my lowest turnout ever for a presentation. Well, we want to make money, I guess. That's true. Well, this is kind of a niche thing. Today's topic is a little bit more for farmers and that kind of thing. Um, so whereas the other stuff, it's like we get every gardener in Missoula showing up. Well, it kind of sounds silly. What, making the big bucks? Yeah, it's kind of like, it sounds like a scam, you know? Do you, do you have making the big bucks shame? <laughs> no. I just, but, like, when I tell other people, like, the title of the workshop, they're like, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's going to be one of those perpetual motion machine things, yeah. you know? And, and you just have to invest. Yeah. <laughs> Here's how we make the big bucks. First of all, everybody here gives me $1,000. And I promise, in time, you'll earn hundreds of thousands of dollars just not having anything to do with me. All right. I'm not taking any money from any of you. Um, uh, I want to start off with with this presentation there's going to be a few different aspects Uh, one aspect is going to be uh, uh, we're going to talk about uh, how permaculture itself can make you more money and then we're going to explore some things that are not necessarily about permaculture but they are examples of places where people have made incredible amounts of money doing things now for a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about and really everything I'm going to talk about here is out on permies.com there's a uh, a, a forum there uh, called uh, Farm Income. And uh, uh, you can find all the stuff here. And, and I get a lot of people that completely reject a lot of this. And a lot of it goes along the lines of the, how they want to raise food the permaculture way. And then they want to go out and they want to sell it for less than what food costs at Safeway. And I support that. They can go ahead and do that. Now, of course, I don't think they're going to make much money doing that. They might actually come out ahead of the people who are, you know, the commodity-based food people. Because, like, when people sell apples, they, they have a massive orchard, and then they sell it to the, the big factory thingamajigs, the warehouses, that will then um, actually strip off the natural wax coating, put on a petroleum wax coating, and put those little stickers on it, and then uh, put them in big boxes and take them out to the grocery stores. When a, when, a, when a person growing apples sells their apples to them, to that warehouse, they're getting like 22 to 23 cents a pound. So then if somebody raises a few apple trees in a permaculture fashion and turns around and sells the apples, they can sell them for 50 cents a pound, which is less than what they sell for at Safeway, and make a profit. That's 
that's great. And they could actually make fairly decent money. I mean, they're making more money than the people that are, you know, doing the, the large-scale operation. But a lot of what I want to talk about today is I want to take those apples and I want to talk about selling them for $10 a pound. I want to come up with, I want to go over a few ideas where people are talking about rather than coming up with a farm-based income where they're earning $20,000 a year or $30,000 a year, I want to explore the space of earning $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year. Does that make sense? Does anybody have a problem with that? Uh, you'd be surprised. I've had people come to this presentation. This is about the fifth or sixth time I've given it. And there are people there who really seriously have a problem with the idea of people making more than $100,000 a year. It's unacceptable. And I ask them to leave. So we're going we're gonna to talk about making money. And, and, and there's a lot of people out there in the permaculture world that are very uncomfortable with that idea. I'm not one of them. The big black book. If you're going to do anything on any kind of scale like more than 10 acres, you need this book. This book has a lot of information about reshaping your land to do the permaculture thing, um, something that some of the other books don't cover particularly well. Um, in fact, a few days ago, I was uh, interviewing Larry Korn. Who here knows who Larry Korn is? Nobody, not a soul. Who here knows who Masanobu Fukuoka is? Oh, half the crowd, half the crowd, <laughs> half, of the, ha, half of the audience, the auditorium, half of them stood up and waved. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, Masanobu Fukuoka is this, is this guy who died about three years ago. Uh, he lived in Japan. Um, he uh, had a variety of amazing techniques. Um, not a big guy on making money, though. But he, I mean, he had all, he had everything he ever wanted. He was living a very wealthy, wealthy life in his hut. I mean, he was, his cup overfloweth. Everything that, that he wanted, he had. And, and then he had, I don't know, probably gobs and gobs of money under the mattress to boot. Uh, he, he lived rather humbly. But um, his uh, rice production per acre was, I believe, in the top 5% of Japan. But I, um, I had the opportunity of interviewing Larry Korn, who did, his, uh, did the translation for the book uh, One Straw Revolution um, a few, many, many years ago, like decades ago, uh, which is Masanobu Fukuoka's book that got translated into English. Um, and so, let's see, boy, I was making a point. Oh, right. Um, at one point, Bill Mollison met Fukuoka. And, um, and so Larry was there. And so he was acting as a translator. And so this was like, wow, what an amazing opportunity. And it was in, uh, I believe, Washington. No, it was in Oregon, at Brighton Bush, Oregon. And uh, they, were, they were together for an hour, and apparently Mollison dominated the conversation and talked about earthwork stuff. But Fukuoka really didn't do much with earthworks. His, all of his stuff had already been, you know, uh, been, had the, the earthworks part done centuries ago. Um, so it was kind of this weird conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm not talking much about making money, am I? So uh, when, you, when you play the permaculture game, here's some spiffy accomplishments. Uh, taking a, a chunk of desertified land and bringing it back into a lush, jungly landscape. Uh, bringing back creeks and streams. 
uh, eliminating fertilizers, eliminating irrigation, eliminating pest control. You get greater food production per acre. And if, I'm pretty sure I have a slide about this later, but if, I, if we get towards the end of the show and I haven't brought this up, make sure I come back to it. Better soils. So the soil is improved in time um, and reduced dependence on oil. All right, so now I'm going to show you three pictures that come right out of the big black book. Um, and uh, so the first one, I'm sure we've all seen this, is a big flat landscape. Now, you know, one of the, well, I don't want to go into permaculture too much, but here's a big flat landscape. This is what we're all used to seeing. This is, this is what people think of when they, what, right now when we think of commodity-based farming. We're going to go out there, we're going to harvest the wheat with a combine, and then we're going to sell it, you know, to whoever the commodity purchasers are, and um, we're going to make something like $30 an acre. <laughs> this last year was a really good year for selling wheat. I heard that some farmers were making, you know, $100 an acre or much, much more. But, you know, for the most part, though, um, the, the income levels are not really big when you play this game. And then you can transition it to a permaculture perspective. So here, they're still harvesting the wheat. They're still, uh, we're, we're, so what is this? This is year four. They're still harvesting the wheat. There's going to be more of it per acre for the acres that are in wheat. Because when you start growing things like wheat between windrows, you typically get more production per acre. Oftentimes, like a lot of times if you just have a windrow every 100 yards or so, <clears throat> overall production for the overall acreage will go up typically 10%, sometimes more. So um, in this case, um, of course, uh, it looks like probably about 40% of the acreage is consumed by non-wheat stuff. So um, I would imagine that wheat production is going to be probably... 30 to 40% less than it used to be. Even though there's more production where it's growing now, it's, it's still going to be overall less. But the other perk is, is that now you're pulling in your wheat, you're still going in and harvesting it with a combine, but you have other crops in here. And I believe, if you, if you get the book and you look at the picture, there's animals in here. I mean, these could be fruit trees or nut trees. There's, there's other crops. You've diversified the crops that you grow. And on top of that, before, um, whoever lives in this little shack down here at the end, I mean, it was probably this, this awesome deal where you make so much money for the wheat that you sell and all the wheat you can eat. How much wheat can you eat? How much of your diet? If you have unlimited free wheat, how much of your diet can you make wheat? So here... We've gone to this system, and so then one of the other perks is, is that you should be able to get to the point that, uh, you know, 90% of your food bill is taken care of on your own land. <clears throat> and now we get into a full permaculture system, year eight. Looks like there's still grains growing in between here, probably not as much. Maybe they're being phased out. But, but now there's more animals. Oh, and by the way, as... Look at that little piece of water that are on the edge. Notice that it starts off all black and funky and then it gets cleaner. And I, I believe that's supposed to be an image of a fish right there. So now you might even be able to add aquaculture to the different kinds of um, income streams you might have. 
Who here has been uh, to some of my presentations about Sepp Holzer? One person? No. Half the crowd. <laughs> that dude makes some money. All right, so now we get into these charts where he tries to compare the different kinds of income streams. So contemporary is at the top, and then we have a, a permaculture system at the bottom and a transitional in the middle. <clears throat> so then the idea here is, is I believe that uh, this is expense and this is income, and then there's a compensation there that's for public subsidy. So wheat, for example, and that was what we were looking at in that first picture, uh, wheat is heavily subsidized. So when they go and they sell the wheat, the amount of money that they pay for wheat is a lot less than what the farmer paid to fertilize that field or to process that field or whatever. And the only way that they actually make an income is when uh, they receive the subsidy. Now, when it comes to corn out in the Midwest, I'm not, I'm not sure about wheat, although I, I used to drive wheat combine when I was a youngster. I drove wheat truck, and I, and I worked in the main office for a big company, uh, for a big ranch that did wheat and peas. Um, but the thing is, is that uh, I know today that farmers in the Midwest, a farmer with a 1,000 acres makes $14,000 a year net take-home pay after receiving subsidies. $14,000 a year, that's the average. $14,000 a year. Now, nearly all of them do all their farming as like a hobby on the side, not as their primary job. They do it because they love to do it. So, um, income, expense, and notice how our expenses are cut a lot because we don't have to pay for fertilizers, we don't have to pay for irrigation, we don't have to pay for um, a lot of different things. We don't have to take our tractor in there eight times a year to, to work the land in order to be able to get a crop out of it. Typically, with a lot of permaculture systems, once you've got them fine-tuned and running good, the only thing you do is harvest. Now, I'll, get, I'll grant you, Harvest is going to be more expensive than when you do it with a machine because harvest nearly always needs to be done by hand. So, you know, harvest is going to cost three times as much. This column represents the amount of petroleum product that's used. And, of course, up here, uh, it's, it's showing it under uh, a conventional. It's going to be uh, really high because of the fact that not only do you have to use all that fuel to drive your tractor back and forth, but most of your fertilizers and pesticides are petroleum-based also. And I don't remember what any of their columns are. <clears throat> this one with the little skull and crossbones, this must represent toxicity or health or something. Um, pests, the number of pests uh, go down when you go with the permaculture system. And um, uh, life diversity goes up. You have more wildlife, more birds. Although, you know, from a financial perspective, you might think, oh, well, what does that mean to me? I'm not going to make any money off of the wildlife. But actually, the wildlife turns out to be, you know, part of your food stream, part of your workforce. Here's explanations for all the columns, which I'm not going to bother going into. <coughs> David Bloom. <clears throat> I'm going to do the obnoxious thing of reading my own slides. 
quote, on approximately two acres, half of which was on a terrace 35 degree slope, I produced enough food to feed more than 300 people, with a peak of 450 people at one point. 49 weeks a year in my fully organic CSA on the edge of Silicon Valley. The farm produced so much income that I was routinely in the top 15% of organic farms in California, which has over 2,000 organic farms. In most years, on a fraction of the land that my colleagues were using. What do you think? Did that guy make some money? I mean, even if he was selling it cheap, he probably made some pretty good money. Feeding 300 people all year, a whole year, 300 people? I mean, what do people spend on food? I mean, if they're only spending 100 bucks a month on food, that's, you know, over $1,000 a year, that works out to $300,000, doesn't it? That's the gross. I don't know. I think that's decent money. Boy, this is an active crowd. <laughs> yes! 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 $300,000! And I bet he sold it for more than that. Probably made more than that. Good for him. And there's more. There are two main reasons known for the dramatically increased productivity of a polyculture. The benefit of mycorrhizal symbiosis, which is destroyed in chemical agriculture, I would go so far as to say it's destroyed when you till the soil. You lose your tilth, you lose your mycorrhizals. And less solar saturation. Oh, I love this part. Solar saturation is the point at which a plant's photosynthetic machinery is overwhelmed by excess sunlight and shut down. In practice. This means that most of our crop plants stop growing at about 10 a.m. and don't start again until about 4 in the afternoon. Various members of a polyculture shade each other, preventing solar saturation. So plants metabolize all day. Polyculture, as we pursue in permaculture, uses close to 100% of the sunlight falling on its mixed crops. Monoculture rarely can use more than 30% of the total sunlight received before saturation. How long could you run any business without external support at 30% efficiency? Well, I think that last sentence could be left out. The rest of it would be better. But <clears throat> still, an awesome statement. For those of you that have come to my permaculture presentations where we talk about other things that are gained from polyculture, um, uh, I think, I mean, you know what, I should take this slide and I should add it to that presentation. Any questions about this? Does everybody want to jump up and yell how awesome that is? Wonderful. It's wonderful. Oh, that's okay. Okay. Yay. <laughs> The mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepulcher has about 110 acres. Climate very similar to Missoula. In fact, his latitude is the same as um, um, not Evero, just past Evero. 
Arlie, Arlie. His latitude is the same as Arlie, and I believe his elevation is about the same as Arlie. Uh, the lowest part of his property is about 400 feet higher than Missoula. Um, he has been fined more than any other farmer in all of Europe, and he is still going strong. The important thing here is, is that he's paid all these fines. He has 110 acres. He paid all of those fines, and he's still going strong. I mean, if he was making only $14,000 a year, I don't think he'd be able to pay all those fines. I mean, um, <clears throat> you might find this really hard to believe, but there are large corporations that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of corporations. It's just that some of them really kind of piss me off. Some of the corporations out there don't have an, a, a set of ethics aligned with my personal ethics, and, and they annoy me. And, and, and those guys tend to, rather than go out and, and create a good product that everybody loves and then everybody just simply buys, they kind of want to go and tinker with government a little bit to improve their bottom line. Uh, so then these laws come out that would find somebody like Sepp Holzer, um, and I'm sure that you won't have to think too long and hard until you can think of corporations like this that are functioning here in the United States. Laws are getting passed that are not so good for little farmers doing little organic things, but are really awesome for them. So he was doing things that they didn't like. And, and, and I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think that he's perceived, Sepp Holzer is perceived to be such a threat, way to go, Sepp, to their bottom line, that laws were mysteriously created just for Sepp's benefit. So um, if Sepp were to stick, I mean, he's up there, he's, he's basically doing uh, um, uh, farming on a mountainside in the Alps of Austria. And so if he sticks a shovel into the dirt, that could start a landslide that could wipe out the village at the base of the mountain. So for the safety of everybody, he needs to be stopped. Um, does that give you an idea of how fines might be? Yeah. Um, so, of course, he hasn't collected any subsidies. He pays lots of fines. Um, I, uh, the impression that I've got, I mean, he's, in his book that is currently available in the United States uh, is kind of like a biography, and as you read it, it's like two-thirds of the book is all about uh, his struggles with the fines and with the government and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, they were, they were on his case regularly for all kinds of crazy stuff. And it just, it's like, wow, this is, they're just making stuff up to come and hassle them. Uh, he's currently taxed at a rate of 85%. So when he was in the United States a couple of years ago, and I spent a bunch of time with him, he um, told uh, a bunch of us that his current tax rate is 85%. And, and on top of that, they stopped calling him a farmer, and they reclassified him as, um, what was it? as a theme park. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's not a farmer, he's a, he's a one-man theme park. I guess it's kind of like going to Nashville or something like that. You go to see Seth Holzer. So um, <clears throat> he actually uh, 
does the tours. He has people come onto his land, and then he gives them a tour. And apparently one time, two of the people on the tour were tax guys. And they documented all this stuff. And, of course, I guess as a theme park, you have to pay a higher level of tax than if you're a farmer. So they, they, they tax him at 85% now. 85% of his income goes to taxes. Can you get a lawyer and fight that? You know, that doesn't seem to be the SEP way. Sure. I, I, I don't know. But, yeah, you're right. You could get lawyers. You could. I mean, imagine over in Austria they don't have lawyers. They might have something else um, that I can't pronounce. Uh, they, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they do it like uh, hand-to-hand combat or something. I'm, I'm not sure how they resolve that kind of thing. Don't they? Do they? Do they maybe they, maybe they have like royalty stuff. Some duke of something tells you how it's going to be. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> the key is is that tax at eighty five percent and paying those fines, and he's got enough income to do that. So um, my guess, I mean, he's never said how much it is that he gets, but my impression is, based on the, the, the bits of, I've been able to gather, is that just from people coming to his land to do this tour thing, because now the laws, I mean, they keep passing laws to make it so it's harder and harder for him to do anything, that now he doesn't even go and sell to um, restaurants anymore. He doesn't sell seeds anymore. He doesn't sell stuff to consumers anymore. But here's what he does do. If you want to come to his land and go on a tour, he charges 95 euros, about 130 bucks. And then you can <clears throat> come onto the land, go on a tour, and if you happen to fill your backpack with a whole bunch of food and whatnot, that's totally fine. But you're on your own. Because if he was to sell you that same food, then suddenly all these regulations and hassles come into play. But if you stole it, you bastard, <laughs> good for you. You're on your own. It's you and the government now. All right. Culinary oddities. He, he has a passion about uh, raising a variety of different animals, raising a variety of different foods, raising a variety of different things that no one's ever raised before, and selling those. He feels like that, that's always been good money. I'm not sure if he does as much of it now as he used to, but that used to be a huge staple for him. He would far prefer to sell an animal for $20,000 than sell the animal for $1,000. So like if you were to raise a yak and sell yak meat, and the whole animal went for 20 grand as opposed to raising a steer and selling the whole animal for $1,000. You can see how, I mean, so that, I mean, it basically eats about the same amount. You butcher it about the same way. Everything's about the same, only you make, you gross 20,000 instead of 1,000. So, but he would do a lot of that kind of thing, <clears throat> not just with meats, but with, um, Vegetables as well. He did a lot of potato breeding. He uh, he was raising mushrooms and re- and breeding mushrooms long before we ever heard of fungi perfecti. All right, here's a here's a different aspect of having a farm. And uh, this is this is an interesting aspect where when I talk to farmer groups that are not organic farmer groups, and sometimes even organic farmer groups. I get a lot of resistance to this. A lot of them have tried it and failed. So um, uh, 
uh, volunteers. There's people who will come out to your farm. There's like uh, it used to be called organic volunteers and has a, def a different name now. Um, uh, and then there's the Woofers. Um, I, right, I, I strongly recommend Woofers. So the Woof.org, W-W-O-O-F.org. <clears throat> and of course interns, straight from college to your farm to be there the whole summer. Woofers are typically there for a few days to a few weeks, although if they really like you, they'll stay longer. Um, volunteers um, might be prearranged, but uh, uh, um, for this group and for some of this group, powerful flake-out factor, powerful no-show factor. But the key is, is that if you play your cards right, you get effectively free labor. Um, the, the thing is, if you get nothing interesting on your land going, typically the thing is they come and they work for 35 hours a week, and then you give them a stipend of about 30 to $40 a week. And that's the, the typical arrangement. Um, there are some farms which are doing way better, <clears throat> such as the Bullock Brothers Farm. The, uh, the, the interns that come there commit to the whole summer, and uh, they pay to be there. So the Bullock Brothers don't pay them to be there. They pay to be there. For a lot of them, it's like, okay, you're going to pay out a, a, a stipend of 30 bucks a week, and you're going to provide room and board. So you're going to provide three meals a day plus um, a decent place to stay. Um, if you're going to provide something like a tent, it needs to be a really nice tent, maybe a teepee or something like that. Um, Bullock Brothers, they don't provide food. They don't provide housing. They uh, give you a space to throw down your own tent, and you're on your own, and the interns say to be there. Now, the Bullock Brothers have a really awesome thing going on, and they have a long list of people who want to work there and be there. And a lot of times the interns come, and then they're, they're obligated to be there for three months, and they stay for two years. That's the typical thing. I mean, there's, there's like at least one guy there that's been there for seven years now. So... Um, most farmers, uh, the, the, the primary complaint I've heard is, uh, is that, oh, yeah, you get these guys, you get these kids coming out. They don't know how to work a hammer. They don't know how to do anything. You're, like, holding their hand all day. You're going to be dollars ahead if you just hire a guy who knows what the hell he's doing and pay him 10 bucks an hour. Um in the meantime, I've met a lot of farmers who understand what they're working with here, and um, they're going to uh, take the time and patience to bring these people up, and then they understand what the interns or woofers are looking for and, and, and how to manage that. So that way, the woofer is happy and the farmer is happy. The woofer needs guidance, and they know how to do it. The farmers that are not having success, they don't give a damn about what the woofer wants. They just want the woofer to get in there and do the work and stop asking so damn many questions. That's not going to work out. That ends up being a face plant. All right, uh, organic operations only. Um, that's another thing, is that some of these people say, okay, I want to do this, and then they get the volunteer there, but they're not doing an organic operation. So then the volunteer leaves. You know, they came there to learn about organic operations, especially the permaculture operation. They, they're very attracted to a permaculture operation above an organic operation. So on the scale of what's cool and what sucks, you've got your uh, conventional ag at the bottom, 
organic above that, sustainable above that, and permaculture above that. And then there are some people that are even above that. All right. <clears throat> oh, look, I already talked about this. Typical situation is $35 per week in exchange for room board and $30 per week stipend. Uh, Anybody know why I wrote up here typically at least six people? You want to have typically at least six woofers, interns, volunteers. At least six youngsters. Why do you want to have at least six? They can hang out with other people. That's a, a great euphemism. So they can hang out with other people. So they can hang out with the other interns. And what's the more vulgar uh, presentation of that information? Let's see, they're young, they're fresh from home, lots of freedom. I think I don't need to say any more. Uh, basically, the thing is, if you're going to go with fewer than six at a time, you're going to need to really incorporate them into your family. And you're going to have to treat them like part of your family. Otherwise, they're really going to want to flee and go to someplace else where there are at least six interns in one spot. Uh, oh, hey, the Rose Brothers, I was just talking about them. Uh, they have a waiting list of interns, and the interns pay the books. Next slide. Masanobu Fukuoka, One Star Revolution. Uh, I already talked about him, top 5% of rice production per acre in Japan. Uh, plus, on that same acreage, so first he pulls off his awesome producing crop of rice, top 5% in the nation, and then off that exact same land, while the other farmers are just letting it be fallow for, for the winter, he grows barley. In addition, he gets two crops. So not only is he producing like you know awesome levels of rice per acre, he's also getting a second crop out of that same chunk of land. He has no big equipment. Because like his neighbors, when they go to harvest rice, they, they use something like a combine, big old combine. He doesn't have any of that. He doesn't do any of that. And he uses no fertilizers or pesticides like his neighbors. So, I mean, basically the thing is, is that his net income per acre is take-home pay. And he doesn't, he doesn't accept any subsidies. The amount of money he's earning per acre is far higher than his neighbors. Common permaculture patterns. I would have said that one of the big differences between a permaculture system and a standard ag system or, I, I don't know, uh, a standard ag system, grow 90% of your own food first. You start by feeding yourself. Whereas most ag operations or, or even market gardens or things like that, they start with the idea of how am I going to sell this? How am I going to get the most money from this? And um, uh, those struggle. There's more struggle there. But if you start, I mean, if you think about it, when you're going out and you're buying food, how many dollars per pound are you spending to bring food to you? It's a lot more, typically, than what it costs you to sell the food. If you feed yourself first, you end up dollars ahead. Um, <clears throat> another common permaculture pattern, introduce systems that will not need irrigation or fertilization. I mean, 
Uh, when I lived in a farm out of Mount Spokane, I bought this 80 acres from a fella, uh, and he was doing mostly hay. And I got the impression that the reason that he sold the land is because he was spending $3,000 in fertilizer every year and then getting about $3,000 a year for the hay. And when I visited with other farmers in the area, the story was pretty much the same. And of course, they loved farming a lot. And so then they accepted that this is the way it worked out. Um, and now, imagine taking a system like that or taking somebody who loves to farm and say, now you get to have more crop and you don't have to buy any more fertilization. You don't, because not only were they paying all that money <clears throat> for fertilizer, but they were spending money on herbicides, and uh, some of them were spending money on irrigation systems um, and and uh, fencing and all kinds of other things. But but uh, so basically, they were running under the red each year to sell hay to other people. And now we have a system where. One of, the, one of the attributes you could recognize a permaculture system is that we're eliminating the need to irrigate, fertilize, or have any kind of pest control. We introduced perennials and self-feeding annuals, and uh, this comes back to the whole thing. Once you've got the whole system set up and you're doing it great, much like sepulcher systems, the only thing you do is harvest. You don't even have to plant seeds. Systems feeding, systems feeding, systems. You feed the chicken offal to the pigs. No more compost pile. You don't have to turn the compost. I mean, basically, if you've got a full farm ecosystem, where would you have a compost pile? Where would you get the materials for a compost pile? Go ahead. Throw a guess at me. Take a stab. What? Your food. So you're in your house. You've got kitchen scraps. And wouldn't you take those out to the pigs or the chickens? <laughs> okay, <clears throat> well, what I've done with my chicken scraps is I have uh, two buckets, one for the pigs and one for the chickens. And so if I've got egg stuff, I put that in for the pigs. Or chicken bones, that goes in with the pigs. And then if I've got, like, pork bones or that kind of thing, it definitely goes into the chickens. Other than that, most food scraps... I just make sure the buckets are about even, and the, pig, the pigs get some, and the chickens get some. I mean, in time, everything just stays where it is. These are portable shelters. If it fills up with poop, you move the shelter and leave the poop where it is. Um, pigs and chickens glean. So Fukuoka does a lot of this. Holzer does a lot of this. Um, in fact, Fukuoka has an interesting way of presenting this that um, makes it so that a lot of people do not like permaculture systems. Um, and if I could take a moment to combine what Fukuoka says with what Holzer says, if you've got an apple tree that is 30 feet tall and loaded with a gazillion apples, then all of the apples that are really low are for the the pigs and chickens and other animals, maybe wildlife and stuff like that that's close to the ground, and they can all have all of that stuff that's, that's low to the ground, like the first few feet off of the ground. Everything that they can't reach up to as far as I can reach, that's for me. 
Anything that's above where I can reach, that's going to fall in the winter time, and that's going to be pig and chicken food in the winter. That's part of their winter feed. Efficient use. And that whole space that's up there, 30 feet up in the sky. I mean, how many farmers are out there harvesting that stuff that's 30 feet up in the sky? How many farmers have a system that produces food 30 feet up in the air? Whereas permaculturalists do take advantage of that, and that's one way that we make more money than they do. Yes, question. Oh, good, a question. This is like the first question of the night. What's, awful? What's the question? What is awful? Awesome? Oh, awful. Um, O-F-F-A-L. It's on there somewhere, isn't it? Feed chickens. Awful. Awful. There it is. Awful. Um, guts. So when you um, harvest a chicken, there's uh, some parts you probably don't like to eat. You harvest a chicken, you're going to you know, have it for dinner or, or whatever. You're going to take the innards out, and you're going to say, I'm, I'm not going to eat that. But the pigs, on the other hand... Both the pigs and the chickens are omnivores. So the, 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 the pigs need protein. They need animal protein. That's part of their natural diet. And so you can take the offal from the chickens and feed it to the pigs. Now, um, even though both pigs and chickens are cannibals, I don't like the idea of feeding chicken offal to chickens. And I don't like the idea of feeding pig offal pigs. I just kind of can't help but think that there could be some chicken pathogens in the chicken offal that could go back to the chickens. Whereas, I mean, we're talking about a bird versus a mammal. I don't think there's going to, there really isn't anything to worry about feeding the chicken offal to the pigs that I'm aware of. And in fact, <clears throat> who here knows who Joel Salatin is? One guy. Man, I'm going to weep. <laughs> All right. Joel Salatin is this awesome, brilliant guy. He, um, he's probably the premier author on agriculture uh, in the world right now. And he's written a lot of really uh, fantastic books. And a couple of years ago, I saw him speak, and um, he was promoting his book, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. And then we got to this Q&A part, and I'm like loaded to the gills with questions. And so I asked him this because what he does is, is that he harvests a lot of chickens on his land and sells them right on his land. So people drive up to his house and they buy five or six chickens at a time and take them home. And so I think it's like Saturdays and Wednesdays are chicken harvesting days when people can come by and buy chicken. What he does is he takes all the offal and he composts it. And if you've, uh, has, has anybody here read any of uh, Michael Pollan's works? Well, they talked about Salatin. He talks about Salatin in almost all of his books. I just haven't read it. Oh. <laughs> you, you own the book. <laughs> no, no, I mean, Michael Pollan's Oh, well, see, in Michael Pollan's, like, for example, um, that one, um, The Omnivore's Dilemma follows three meals. And, one, and, and a lot of the book, about a big slice of the book, is dedicated to a week he spent at Salatin's farm. And part of what he did was, is, is like, okay, we're doing the, the, the composting of the chicken offal. And, um, and he talked about how it smelled so bad. And now for me, personally, <clears throat> if you can smell any, if anything smells off, you're doing it wrong. 
And for me, that's one thing that's being done wrong. So I asked Joel, um, hey, 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 how about this idea of feeding the chicken off of the pigs and the pig off of to the chicken? And he said that he would do that, that that is the way that he prefers to do it, only he believes that his customers would not be okay with that. That would be like a little too much for them to embrace. But, you know, I, I was saying, I do it. I think that's the way to fly. I, I think that that's, that's one of the most awesome advantages of raising a variety of different animals and a variety of different plants and a variety of different everything is that the outputs from one system are the inputs to another. One of the best pig foods in the world, and I think I mentioned this in my last presentation. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, one of the best pig foods in the world comes out of this uh, biological grass beer processing system. There's this processing system that makes beer out of grass. And then the waste from that is excellent pig food. It's an almost perfect pig food. And this biological grass beer processing system is called a cow. <laughs> so cows kind of drink beer all day, made from grass. <clears throat> and then their output, the stuff that they don't consume, is like one, is a near-perfect pig food. But we're talking about you know, the output of an herbivore going into an omnivore. It sounds weird to us, but it's not weird to a pig. Any other questions? Wimps. Bunch of wimps. Since this was uh, this presentation went over two hours and my podcasts are now about 45 minutes each, then uh, I broke this up into three pieces. So you just heard piece number one, and um, I, uh, I think that was number nine. So podcast number 10 is going to contain uh, part two, and then... So normally when I do this, I uh, ask, you know, I, I say there's a price because it takes me hours to put these things together. And I say, okay, well, I, I paid my dues and now you're going to put in some small effort and compensation. This time I'm going to say go on out to reddit.com, R-E-D-D-I-T dot com, and just have fun. Go, it's a wonderful site. Um, go and uh, spend an hour enjoying yourself, learning uh, what the site's all about, upvote some stuff, downvote vote some stuff, things of that nature, and uh, I'm going to assume by number two that you've done that, and then I will give you the next part in my devious plot. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about making the big bucks with permaculture, uh, and homesteading, and permaculture all the time.